Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13, I'll read the first five verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. At this point in John's Gospel, The public ministry of Jesus has come to an end. And here John brings before us the last supper of Jesus with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And in these opening verses here, John gives us much more than a mere introduction into the last supper. He frames a window by which we can see into the heart of Christ And we may know his continuing love and affection for us even now after he has ascended back into heaven. Jesus knew all things that were before him. His hour of suffering had come. His cross was just before him. And then afterward, he would be raised from the dead and he would ascend back into the glory of heaven with his heavenly father. John tells us here in verse 1 knowing Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. And then with this fixed in his mind, that he was going to the glory, returning to the glory of heaven, John gives us a sight into the heart of Christ when he will arrive there in the rest of verse 1. And it will be a heart of love and affection that will continue for us Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost, and into eternity. And then Jesus, in this passage, he demonstrated his continuing love for his disciples, even after he would arrive on his throne in heaven as he rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and girded himself with a towel and with water in the basin He washed the feet of his disciples. And his washing of their feet was a symbol of his washing away of all of their sins. This is what he would continue to do for his believing people after he even after he returned to his father in glory in heaven. And he would be upon a throne of sovereignty and power. His love would still continue to the end. And he, as willing as he was to wash their feet this night, so willing he would be to continue to wash away their sins as the great high priest and intercessor in heaven. This is what we need every day. 
Because of our remaining sin, we are continually stained and defiled with sin. We need one who is able and willing to continually be washing away our sins. We cannot do it ourselves, and we have none other who can do it for us, but we have one in Jesus Christ who continually cleanses us from our sins. All of this is his love for us. As he is still in heaven, we are still on earth, even to the end. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at the heart of Christ Now that he is in heaven, as he looks down upon his disciples, John gives us this window here to see into the heart of Christ. This is what continues now throughout the entire upper room discourse in the following chapters. And this morning, we want to begin to look at a few of the passages in this upper room discourse This morning, we'll look at, and this evening as well, we'll look at only one passage which is found in the beginning of chapter 14, where in verses 1 through 3, we read Jesus' words to his disciples. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Several things we can see in this passage here, the first thing we want to see this morning is that Jesus comforts his troubled disciples. In the previous verses, Jesus has just told his disciples he will be leaving them soon. If we look back to chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus just said, little children, I am with you a little while longer You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus had been with his disciples for more than three years. He had been their guide in all things. He had become their Lord and their master. They had given up everything to follow him, and he had become everything to them. And nothing could have caused them greater distress and sorrow than this news of his coming departure from them, that he would go away to a place where they would not see him any longer and they could not follow him now. What would become of his disciples when they were not, when Jesus was not with them and they were left alone? This is shocking and very distressing news that came from Jesus that left his disciples in a state of confusion and bewilderment. And Jesus knew this. And so that's why he speaks the words here in verse 1. He seeks to encourage them in their trust in God. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus here discovers the inward disease of trouble of heart. Fears, anxieties, and cares. 
And this trouble of heart is found in every person to one extent or another in this present world. Whether we be rich or poor, whether we be mighty or lowly, none of us are exempt from it. We may find it in the heart of a poor man. And we may find it often even more in the heart of a rich man. And there is no power or money that can ever keep us from this trouble of heart. We live in a world of men and women who are filled often with troubles in their hearts. Sometimes it arises from circumstances outside of ourselves, sometimes by inward perplexing thoughts, sometimes by things present and sometimes by things in the future, sometimes by things real and sometimes by things imaginary. We have come this morning, each one of us, and no doubt upon the hearts of all of us and some more and some less, there is this heart trouble, there is this anxiety, there is this sense of discouragement and depression of soul. But Jesus is the great physician of souls. He has diagnosed the disease, now he gives the remedy as well, and he knows the remedy, which is to believe in God, he says, and to believe also in me, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The remedy to heart trouble here is to trust in God more completely, more entirely, more unreservedly, more submissively to cast ourselves upon him and trust him, believe in God, believe also in me, in his love and power and faithfulness to us. Jesus really gives us here a double remedy. He tells us to believe in God and also to believe in him, which implies his entire equality with God the Father, so that we have this double cure. We may believe in God, and we may also believe in Jesus, and better yet, that we believe in both the Father and the Son in their great love and power at the same time. The apostles were not exempt from this trouble. Neither will we be, and when such time comes, Jesus does not wish his disciples to be overwhelmed with this trouble of heart, and so he tells us to look upward to God the Father and to God the Son. Trouble of heart is what is often the means to increase our faith. Nothing less than God can help us in such times And he alone can bear us up. He alone must be the object of our faith. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God and believe also in me. The disciples here, they were true believers at this time when Jesus spoke these words. But they still needed more faith, more trust and confidence in God. Weak faith will save us from our sins. But weak faith may not give us the comfort we need in times of great trial. The only remedy is this increased faith. And so Jesus encourages us to rest more entirely upon him and his heavenly father. And this statement here of Jesus already shows us much of the continuing love 
and the tender kindness that Jesus has toward his disciples. That he would speak to our troubled hearts and tell us and desire for us to know the way of relief from our troubles. He had his own troubles. He had his own trouble of heart on this night. He was soon to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and fall down in a bloody sweat and cry, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The weight of the world and sin was to be placed upon him and he would go to a cross of shame and agony. Jesus had his own heart of trouble on this night. And if ever a man could be excused for being absorbed in his own trouble, it was Jesus on this night. But yet his heart is so filled with love and care for us that his concern here is for our trouble of heart. Let not your heart be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus was soon to be gone from them so that they would not see him anymore. But his absence from their sight would now be taken up by faith. Faith would replace sight. And so he tells them to believe in God, believe also in me. The second thing we see here in the passage is that Jesus discloses where he is going. Up until this point, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going away from them, but he has not told them where he is going. Now he tells us here in verse 2 where he is going, to his father's house, which is the place where we call heaven. He says in verse 2, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. This is where he is going to his father's house in heaven. He will ascend back up into heaven after his death and resurrection. He will be exalted back to his father on his throne of glory in his father's house. And Jesus tells us several things about heaven in this verse that we should take note of. First, heaven is his home, and through him, heaven becomes our eternal home as well as believers. This is why he calls it my father's house. Home is a place where we are always welcome. Home is a place of acceptance. Home is a place of safety and love, a place of comfort and rest, a place of joy and fellowship, and all of this is what is implied here in my father's house. In this world, we pass through a wilderness, often a lonely wilderness, a strange and foreign land, but heaven has become our home, our father's house, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, he said, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
We are a good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's what will happen when we die. We will be absent from the body. We will go to our Father's house and we will be at home with the Lord. So heaven is in the first place a home, my Father's house, he says. The second thing Jesus tells us here in his Father's house is that there are many dwelling places. Some of the English Bibles translate the word mansions, and they say, in my Father's house are many mansions. And that word mansions comes from the Latin word that was used in the Latin Vulgate Bible that was translated by Jerome back in the late 300s. And so we have this English word mansions now that comes from that. But if we think of mansions in the sense that we have these large houses and we are separated and isolated from one another, then the thought here of mansions is not really helpful. But if we think of the magnificence, the riches, the glories, the wonders of God's house, our dwelling place in the Father's house, then the idea is more helpful to us. The best translation really is what we have in the NAS here, which is dwelling places. There are only two places in the New Testament where the word is used. Right here in John 14 and verse 2, and then once again down in this same chapter, down in verse 23, where Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There's the word, our abode. So the word speaks of a dwelling place. We will permanently come and abide with him. We will remain with him and take up our residence with him. So back in verse 2, Jesus here, when he speaks of many dwelling places, he is speaking of lasting, permanent, eternal dwelling places for all of his disciples. In this world, we have no lasting dwelling place. But in our Father's house in heaven, we have an eternal place of residence where we will abide and live forever. The tabernacle in the wilderness was God's house, but it was only a temporary house. The temple in Jerusalem was God's house, but it was only a temporary dwelling place. But in heaven, there is this eternal, majestic and permanent dwelling place, many dwelling places for God's people. When Jesus speaks here of my Father's house, he speaks of his majestic dwelling place in heaven as we know it now, but he also is looking forward to the entire new creation when this world will be made new into the new heavens and new earth and this entire creation will become God's house again, his dwelling place forever. And God will be among us and we will be with him and there will be this permanent and eternal dwelling place of God with us and us with him. This is what John saw in the city coming down out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21. 
And this is what the writer to the Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews 13 and verse 14, where he said, For we do not have a here, a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are looking for the city which has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. This is what Jesus is speaking of here, the everlasting city, his father's house with many dwelling places. The emphasis here really is on the word many, a great many dwelling places. There are a vast number of dwelling places in the father's house in heaven. Heaven is not just a place for the father and the son. Heaven is a place for all of God's people. And there is abundant space and there are rooms for believers. His house will be filled with all of the sons and daughters of God in their eternal dwelling places forever. And so there is room for every sinner to come. And no person who comes by repentance and faith could ever doubt that there is a place that can be given to him in heaven. From every tribe and tongue and nation and people, a number that is beyond the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore, there are many dwelling places there in heaven. So this idea, my father's dwelling, my father's house, It is a term that Jesus uses here because God has become our heavenly father through him. And it speaks of our fellowship with the father, the closeness that we shall have with him when we arrive there, that we shall know him intimately and we shall be with him in his presence in this endless fellowship with him, My father's house, it is a palace of a great and holy king, but it is also the place of our heavenly father where we will know him and be with him and we will experience his tender and loving care for us. Verse 1 speaks of the trouble of heart that we know in this life. Verse 2 speaks of my father's house where no such trouble shall ever be found. And then as if in a parenthesis, now in verse 2, Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, I am speaking the truth to you. I am the truth, as he says down in verse 6, and I have always spoken truth to you, and I will only always speak truth to you. I will never deceive you is what he means. I will never speak anything to you that is not true. And there can be no doubt over what I speak to you about my father's house and these many dwelling places that are found there. For unbelievers in this world, they have thoughts of heaven sometimes, but their thoughts are only vague and uncertain. They hope there is a heaven in the afterlife, They hope they are going there when they die. But if they were really going there, they would live now as if they were. It is all vague and uncertain to them. 
But for us, there is no vagueness. There is no uncertainty. Because heaven is a place of certainty, truth. And everything that Jesus has told us about it is found in the scripture. And we will never be disappointed when we arrive there. And everything will be exceeding abundantly beyond what we could even ever ask or think because of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has told us that it is so. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He will never deceive us. So here we see in the beginning of verse 2 that Jesus discloses where he is going. He says he is going into his father's house. But then, in the third place, he tells us what he will be doing when he gets there. We ask the question, when Jesus ascends back up into heaven, what will he be doing in his father's house? What will be his business? What will he be about once he arrives in that place? Will the worship of heaven be so glorious that he will forget about his disciples on earth? Will it be, will he be so absorbed in the happiness and the joy of heaven that he will have no thought and no mind for his disciples on earth anymore? It could never be. He tells us what he will be doing when he arrives in heaven at the end of verse 2. He says, for I go to prepare a place for you. He speaks of his ascension back up into heaven. After his death and resurrection, this is what he will be doing at the right hand of the Father. He will be preparing a place for us. If we look at verse 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, when he says there, I go, he speaks of his ascension back to his father. And then when he says, and when I come again, I will come again, he speaks of his second coming at the end of the world. And so this entire time between his ascension when he goes and his second coming when he comes again, what he is telling us here is this is what he will be doing. This is what he will be, this will be his business throughout this entire period of time. He will be preparing a place for us, those dwelling places in heaven. And so this is what Jesus is doing now in glory this morning. He is preparing a dwelling place for all of his people. It is true that Jesus made his preparations for us in large part at the cross when he suffered and paid the penalty for our sins. That is not what this verse is speaking of. It is speaking of when he goes into heaven, in verse 2, into my father's house. He says, I go. Where is he going? He is going into his father's house. And what will he be doing when he is there? He, he says, I will go into my father's house and there I will prepare a place for you. So what does this mean? That Jesus will prepare a place for us. There is mystery 
about this. How much of it is figurative? How much of it is literal? We cannot say. We must keep ourselves within the boundaries of Scripture to understand what he means when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, when you have guests in your home, you know that you have to make preparations for them, whatever might be involved, whatever food, whatever room they are to stay in, things must be made ready for the guests. And this is how Jesus seems to speak, that in heaven there will be these preparations. All things must be made ready for us when we arrive In the first creation, God prepared this world for us to dwell in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In six days he spoke, and all things were brought into being, and this world was made ready for our inhabitation. And so are there preparations in some way in the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness will dwell, and Jesus is caring for those preparations. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and then the king sent out the invitations, and he said, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And there is that preparation of Jesus by his cross that we may now enter into the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus returns at the end of this world, there will be that great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the saints in the kingdom of heaven. Are there preparations that must be made for that glorious marriage supper of the Lamb which is to come? There are some things that we may say with certainty from other scriptures about what Jesus means here when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He means, I go as a forerunner on your behalf to go there into heaven to gain an entrance for you and to make the way and the place ready for you. We can see this, Jesus as our forerunner into heaven in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. And Jesus, or, or the writer to the Hebrews, writes in verse 19, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19 speaks of the certainty of our future hope. It is compared to an anchor, the only place in the New Testament where this metaphor is used. Our hope, 
Our future hope of salvation is like an anchor of the soul. An anchor is what is dropped from a ship and it goes down into the sea and it embeds itself in the bottom of the sea so that the ship cannot be moved. So no matter what the wind and the waves of the sea may be and the fierce raging of the storm on the surface of the sea, the anchor remains fixed and immovable in the bottom of the sea so that the ship is safe and secure. That's the idea here. But we have an anchor. We have an anchor who is Christ. And Christ has entered into the very veil of heaven, into the holy place of heaven. He has made the atonement, the purification for our sins. He has ascended. He is at the right hand of God. And there he is fixed, immovable, like an anchor for our souls. It is impossible that he could ever be moved. Our salvation is certain and fixed. The anchor of our souls, no matter what storms, no matter what troubles come upon us in this life, our salvation is secure in him. There's two words that are used here. In verse 19, he says, a hope that is both sure and steadfast. That first word, sure, is the Greek word, asphaly. We get our English word asphalt from it. And then the second word steadfast is a synonym. The same idea. So what the apostle is saying is that we have an anchor. We have an anchor in Christ as if it is embedded into two layers of asphalt in heaven itself within the veil of God's place there. What could be more sure and certain for our salvation? Eternally immovable Unshakable is our salvation, and Christ, our anchor, is untouched by anything that takes place in this world. These people to whom the apostle wrote, they were persecuted believers. There was a great storm in their life at this time. The whole world was tossed by what was taking place. They were losing everything in this world, no matter what they could lose in this world. The apostle is telling them they have an anchor that is sure and steadfast in heaven, in Jesus Christ within the veil. Then he tells them in verse 20, Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, according, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He has entered into the holy place within the veil as at the end of verse 19 And he has gone there, he says, as a forerunner for us. The idea of a forerunner is one who goes to open the way and to prepare for others to follow after him. The forerunner does not go for himself. The forerunner goes for those who will follow him to prepare everything for them. When he arrives there. This is what Christ has done for us. He has purchased salvation. He has ascended into heaven itself as our forerunner. And now he is there to prepare everything for us. Having become a high priest forever, it says, according to the order of Melchizedek. High priests of the Old Testament, 
they would enter within the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would wear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on their breastplate. And when they entered into the holy place, they would represent them. They would carry their names into the holy place before God. This is what Christ has done for us. He has entered into heaven and our names are written upon his heart so that he carries, he represents us, he carries our names into that holy place. A forerunner goes for one purpose, to prepare the way for those who will follow. And he can never forget them. And he must bring them with him. And so Christ has done for us. I go, he says, I go to prepare a place for you and to make all things ready. We find the same idea in other passages of the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, the apostle says that we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the apostle speaks in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 of our citizenship which is in heaven and we wait for the Savior to come. So this is what he has done for us as our forerunner. He has gone up into heaven. We are seated with him in the heavenly places and he is preparing the place for us to come after him. We can turn over here to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 22. And the writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. In other words, you have already come by faith to these things. This is not something future, but this is present. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We notice in the beginning of verse 23, he says that we have come to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The words could also be translated as we are, our names are written in heaven. Our names are written on the breastplate, on the heart of the great high priest, Jesus. Our names are written in heaven, our names are written in the book of life. Our names are engraved on his hands. Our names are already known in heaven. We are not strangers in heaven. We are not those who are unknown. And we are not those who will be unexpected when we go. All of heaven knows our names. And all of heaven awaits our arrival. And Christ has gone to prepare the place for us. We know what it's like when we go to a place. 
and we arrive there and no one knows who we are. No one knows our names. No one seems to know us and we wonder if we are welcome. It will not be so when we arrive at heaven. Our names are enrolled. Our names are in the book of life on the breastplate of the great high priest inscribed upon his hands. Our names are known and we are expected. Our arrival is anticipated there. And there will be a great welcome for us there because Christ has gone. There are many dwelling places in my father's house, he says. And I go to prepare a place for you. So we turn back to John chapter 14. Verse 2, John speaks of his father's house. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. What he is speaking of here is ultimately the heavenly Canaan, the heavenly land of Canaan in the new heavens and a new earth where it will be his father's house forever. The earthly Canaan was a picture, a type of the heavenly Canaan, which is to come. And in that earthly Canaan, when God brought the sons of Israel into the land, he brought them into the land and everything was prepared for them there. Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10, when they were about to enter the land, he said this, Then it shall come about that when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses, dwelling places full of good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig and olive and vineyard which you did not plant and you shall eat and be satisfied. So as it was with the earthly Canaan, everything was prepared for the people to enter. So it will be with the heavenly Canaan and the holy city of the new Jerusalem when it comes down out of heaven. All of its walls, gates, streets, the tree of life and the fruit of the tree, everything, the great supper of the marriage of the lamb, everything will be made ready. Whatever must be made ready will be made ready by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. So what Jesus is saying here at the end of verse 2 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, is he is telling us, he is disclosing his heart of love and affection for his people on earth even after he ascends back into the glory of his father's house. This is his great love for us still here upon earth. He is there for one purpose, to prepare a place for us. He will be exalted to the throne of heaven. He will have one great concern. He will have one thing upon his heart and his mind. And that one thing will be to prepare the place for us. He will not go there for his own advantage. He will go there 
for our advantage. That's what his entire business will be about, even now this morning. This is what he said in John 16 and verse 7. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to our advantage that he goes now to prepare a place for us. That's what he's saying here. It is to your advantage I am going to prepare this eternal dwelling place for you. Peter spoke of our inheritance in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And he said, it is reserved in heaven for you. How is it reserved in heaven for you? Because Christ has gone as the forerunner to prepare the place, to guard and keep it from all harm, that none may take it from us and it be ready for us when we arrive. He has always been about his father's business on earth. This is what he said when he was 12 years old in the temple. He said, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? And that's the way he spent his life, always about his father's business. This is what he's now doing in heaven. He continues to be about his father's business, which is this Preparation of all things for his people. It is the love of Christ for us. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loves them to the end. He has ascended to his father's house and he prepares the place for us. So there are many troubles in this life. Many afflictions, storms, Difficulties we must pass through. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled by these things. Believe in God, believe also in me. And believe everything that I have told you about my Father's house. This is the great hope and comfort in these times of trouble. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And I have gone, I will go to prepare a place for you. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has come down from heaven to speak such wonderful things to us that we may know the truth, that we may not be deceived in any way. We may rest ourselves completely and trust in you and in your beloved Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would put your word into our hearts this day and give us much joy, happiness, and anticipation that we shall soon be with you in your Father's house. We ask you to hear us now and bless the gospel to us. In Jesus' name, amen.